0: Hello all, David Oakes here with a very special bonus episode of Trees A Crowd. Back in February, as I was on my way to Gloucestershire to interview Mark Frith about his oak trees, see episode one, my producer dropped a bit of a bombshell. It not only transpired that her boyfriend had been raised in the next door village, but that his parents were local, that his mother was a Morris dancer, and that she had also operated as something akin to a badger cull saboteur. A couple of pints to the wind, and having spoken the week before to Astrid about her models of mini Morris dancing mustelids, it seemed wholly appropriate, nay mandatory, to invite her to talk with me on Trees of Crowd. So this is my producer's boyfriend's mother, otherwise known as Kathy Brent, and as you'll hear, Kathy is far, far more interesting a person than someone who can just offer an insight into the heady world of Morris. So without further ado... Here's the bonus episode of Trees A Crowd.
1: In the depth of the forest, an old oak root, the pride of the greenwood would bear. O'er his branches, the ivy, her mantle threw, when the forest boughs were bound. Oh, the oak and the ivy, oh, the oak and the ivy.
0: Kathy Brent, you're here with me in the Black Horse Inn in North Nibley, which is a glorious pub. You can probably hear some punters in the background having a lovely time. And it transpires that you are a Morris dancer. So we've asked you in to talk to us a little bit about um, whether or not you think a badger could possibly be capable of Morris dancing.
1: Well, badgers are extremely resourceful. <laughs> I can't imagine a badger wanting tomorrow's dance. I can't think of a situation in which it would be advantageous to a badger well, tomorrow's some dance. Some human beings would
0: suggest that they wouldn't imagine a world where they would want tomorrow's dance.
1: Oh, ah, well, I could, I, could, I could counter that one. If a badger <laughs> was tomorrow's dance, it would be much more likely to be dancing border than Cotswold. <laughs> However, having seen your, your clip, it appears these ones dance Cotswold, so I'm proved wrong.
0: Well, Astrid has obviously done her research appropriately. Um, you brought along some uh, garments that they they were not wearing. They were more sort of white. So what does the white mean? These are more rags. This is yeah. the Bristol rag uniform? Yeah, that, that, is it called a uniform?
1: Uh, no, it's um, Bristol rags, rags, yes. Rags. Um, okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, traditionally what they are wearing is Cotswold kit, mm. um, which tends to be white with either baldric or Ribbons across. And traditionally, the border Morris, which is the Welsh border, border with England, um, tended to be rags. Um, We dance Cotswold in rag coats, and there's a fair amount of crossover among the sides now. So that means
0: white trousers? No. No? No. No. Rag trousers?
1: No. We're a university side, so we aim to get people up and dancing as soon as possible, so people can choose their colours, they can choose their trousers... The only thing they do is make a rag coat and they choose the colours of the rags that they make. So it's, it's fairly student-friendly in terms of you can express your individuality, but your dance aside, side.
0: That sounds glorious.
1: Yeah, it's quite fun.
0: Actively, you're enfranchising them to get into um, sewing and needlepoint as well, then?
1: Um, we've
0: all, got the, a- all the crafts coming together in one glorious activity.
1: Mm, no, I wouldn't <laughs> say that. Um, <laughs> We have some spare rag coats, so typically we would start in the start of the academic year in September, and the first dance out would be round about Christmas and people who hadn 't made a rag coat would probably just borrow one sure. and Some members are a lot more adept with needles and such like than others, and several have sewing machines, and there tends to be a gathering at somebody other 's house and a fair amount of help tends to be given to newcomers <laughs> who wish to put these things together. So,
0: and so when you say Cotswold, that's just a shirt and trousers, cricket whites, kind of like thing. What, what's the definition of that? Cotswold, obviously, it comes from the Cotswold, well, but it's the legislation passed down by Morris Law or like. How there does...
1: is no such thing as legislation passed down by Morris Law. Basically, it all goes back to money. Um, basically, Morris dancing is a way of extracting money with menaces. So um, in the Cotswolds, you had your big houses, and you tended to go and dance at the big house, usually in the summer, often at May, sometimes for a harvest, for a festival. So you had to basically make your dancing as showy as possible in hopes of a good tip. And you could earn more as a as a Morris dancer than you could as a ploughman for the, for a month, you know, if you if you did your things sure. right. So so Morris, in the Cotswold tradition, is quite showy, and it's designed to show off the how high you can jump and the different sort of capers you can do and such like. How the,
0: high can you jump?
1: In my case, not very high. How it, many
0: capers can you do?
1: Many, <laughs> <laughs> and many different varieties thereof. <laughs> Um, But, you know, there are sides that pride themselves on being able to leapfrog over a fellow member of the side wearing a top hat, for example. (laughs) So, you know, some can jump pretty high. (laughs) That depends Um, on how
0: top the toppest hat is and how tall that said Morris Dancer was.
1: Yeah, it's quite impressive to watch, though. (laughs) Um, Whereas Border, you would traditionally do at Christmas or Christmas New Year and it tended to be blacked up so your mates wouldn't recognise you. you, you put your rags together with whatever you happened to have and you went round the pubs. Sure. So you had a different clientele, so it was more important that people didn't recognise you, um, whereas with the Cotswold it was more important that you were showy. Sure, so more kid. money to be made and yeah. therefore
0: recognition. The border dancers. are you could become the most famous Cotswold dancer... Then and you could... the,
1: there were several very famous... Um, Morris dancers who did And and after this wrong. podcast you
0: will be one of the modern I'm day most infamous Morris dancers of the uh, 21st I'm century I very much <laughs> um, um, you, you mentioned there very briefly the blacking up element, I mean yes. for those who don't know Morris dancing comes from Moorish dancing
1: um, Discuss
0: Discuss, well quite there are what, do, what do you, many, you believe many, the main roots are?
1: different versions of where Morris dancing comes from um, I have Gone to a stick festival in um, northern Spain Mm -hmm. um, where people were dancing with sticks.
0: Whereabouts in northern Spain? In the Um, Basque country or?
1: Near Barcelona. Okay. So Catalan. And so there were a number of different types of stick dancing going on, but some was very clearly battle practice because they had the equivalent of a sword and the equivalent of a shield, like a sort of buckler.
0: So Um, many of the sporting activities and events in northern Spain, it seems to me, are about battle. Like they have this thing where they have to, they take an attempt to cut down a tree and who can cut down it quicker. It's been modernized now where you have two Spanish men standing on top of a car with an axe, seeing who can cut through a. Cinquecento quicker than anyone else. Is that's something they've got against the Italians?
1: <laughs> I have no idea, but um, certainly that particular tradition seems to have come from exercises for swordsmen which could conceivably have linked to battles with moors or uh-huh. whatever. I don't think anybody knows. Okay. Um, that is one of the theories, and there are many.
0: And the Bristol Rag being so relaxed about what you wear is also relaxed about the heritage, therefore, of where it comes from.
1: Just nobody knows. Nobody you know, knows. You, you talk to three different Morris people, you'll get three different stories. Um, well, that, that takes long some. Quite. Some people say came over in about. I can't even remember the dates. Um, Probably
0: 11th century, 12th century, something like that. No,
1: a bit later than that. The Nine Men's Morris is filled up with mud, is mentioned in Shakespeare, but that's probably more likely to be a maze. Mm -hmm. Um, But there were certainly the equivalent of Morris dancing going on somewhere around about that time. Um, John of Gaunt, that's the name I was trying to come up with, which was. Some theorists date it back to John O'Gorn. I
0: don't know. I'm, I'm now holding some genuine, authentic Morris bells, um, which are quite spectacular. Going back to regional sensibilities, I, I did a film about um, the Polish the Polish dancers to Niewka, which is basically the graduation ball. Mm. They all do it. They all learn it from an early age. There are fewer bells. It's more sort of like an American prom kind of thing. But... Like so many regions of Spain, like so many regions of Italy or France, they take pride in, in their national or regionally specific dance. And if there's one thing that, the, English don't do necessarily as a nation state to take pride in the dance, even though there are, huge pockets of enthusiasts. And and like a lot of things that have seemed to be a little bit, uh, idiosyncratic, mm. they're normally sort of poo-pooed because they are different.
1: I think, on the whole, um, we tend to... You know, people like us if they're having an event and they want a bit of colour and such like. Mm -hmm. But there isn't the same feeling as there is in the...
0: In, in Europe in general, in, 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 other parts. in the mean, world The, in the
1: classic is the Oscar Wilde quote, which I'm sure you know. You should try everything, everything. in life once apart from incest and monostatic. So,
0: <laughs> so I, I have, I've heard that so many times. I've had it, heard it attributed to Oscar Wilde. There's a composer that I've heard it contributed, to, a conductor who's used it. To I this day, I don't know. I have done one of those two things as a few. I hope it's only one. Um, uh, But unfortunately, on screen, I've done them both. Uh, But that's a whole other matter altogether. So, do you compete as a group? Like, how often do you get out and. We don't
1: compete, it's not a competitive activity.
0: I made the mistake of calling you a troop earlier as well.
1: Yeah, no, we're we're sides. (laughs) There is a version, there's another version of Morris dancing, which is not Morris dancing, but it's sword dancing. Um, rapper dancing, and that is competitive. Sure. But Morris isn't.
0: You've never been tempted to take up a blade?
1: I've tried, <laughs> I get tangled up. Because <laughs> while it's called sword dancing, it actually, the swords have um, handles at both ends. So it comes from the mines. Again, it's linked with the Northwest. There you go. I think so. But no, Morris dancers do not compete, but they do have a lot of gatherings at which many sides will be dancing. So people certainly watch whether you're any good or not but there is, but nobody is scoring it officially. <laughs> we were actually invited to take part in the closing ceremony of the Olympics with Black Heath Morris um, who we mentioned earlier. Um... We weren't actually properly Morris dancing. It was a sort of choreographed display, but then that was part of these closing and opening ceremonies. I so think everything, everything was a bit, everything sort was a bit of, choreographed. Yeah. But nonetheless, I was pleased that they did include Morris dancing in those ceremonies and very pleased that our side was taking part.
0: Well, I remember watching it. I thought it was fantastic. I think mean, everything about the opening and the closing of the 2012 mm. Olympics was yeah. was wonderful. And I'm sorry that they didn't l- let you Morris dance in real terms. But I think the Spice Girls used to be happy, and they didn't seem to be when they were performing. So I guess everyone was forming some kind of pastiche you, of what they did used you, to be. Did
1: you see the closing ceremony and as well? Did, yeah. It was uh, always walk on the bright side. We had to develop a Morris dance to fit that, which actually goes quite well to Bampton. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> so we've talked briefly about all the different kinds of English dancing there are. Have you mm. seen any other kinds of dancings on your travels around the world
1: at all? Absu- absolutely. And I think it is very interesting how similar styles of dancing evolve in different countries. How so? Um, from the European perspective, I've travelled in Spain and watched and performed in festivals that included stick dancing, mm-hmm. That um, had similarities to the Border Morris, but also looked very much like patterns with practicing for battles. So that's one alternative route. I've also, in Sierra Leone, um, watched a side of stick dancers who were called stick dancers not because they were waving sticks, but because they were dancing on sticks. They were stilt dancers. And
0: there were similarities between...
1: Well, the similarities, because they weren't all dancing on stilts, some of them were dancing individually, um, was in the kit. And it struck me... As in the rag kit or the... Yes, they, they were wearing something that could be described as rags, certainly flowing materials, and on their legs they had effectively bell pads. Now, they weren't made of bells... You wouldn't be able to get hold of bells in Sierra Leone. But they were tube metal that jingled in the same sort of way as a bell pad. And they were waving rags in the same sort of way as we wave handkerchiefs.
0: So, so do you think there's a commonality between their dancing and our dancing because of a, of a conversation that's been had over time and distance? Or do you think it's just the nature of movement and I of sound? I think it's a
1: parallel evolution. I think in in Spain, I would say, yes, there's probably a conversation that's been going on throughout Europe and dance has moved backwards and forwards. Uh I felt that the West African dancing was a a parallel evolution in that if you wanted to make noise, bits of metal tied to your legs was quite a good way of doing it. If you wanted to um, make an impact... Flying rags and waving pieces of material it was, was a, as good a good way, way of doing, doing it. The other.
0: So, do you think that, therefore, that's kind of why the Moorish dancing, Moorish dancing, that comes about? is people saw two different kinds of dancing that looked similar, and
1: therefore, I've no idea. No idea. It's still that. I've no idea, but I, I was fascinated by the parallel evolution of something that looked remarkably similar, and some of the steps even looked fairly similar. <laughs>
0: <laughs> were you out there for dancing reasons, or why, why no. were you in Sierra again? No, no.
1: Um, I work with a charity called Rory's Well which is basically working with a group of 20 villages in a fairly rural area of Sierra Leone next to the Gola Forest, which is the last remaining area of rainforest in the country. Um, And we are basically trying to support the regeneration of the economy of those villages, which suffered enormously during the Civil War... And then, although they didn't actually get affected by Ebola, largely because of the charity's work, Uh because they were were able to bring in disinfectants, the entire country shut down over Ebola. So it's only really over the last four years that anything has been able to develop. So during that time, the people I'm working with have been digging boreholes, helping with agriculture... And more recently, I've been involved in, with my husband, teaching beekeeping, and the latest thing, which I find very exciting, is um, the development of a particular type of farming, which we're trialling, called Inga Alley Farming, um, which has the potential for people to create permanent farms rather than slash and burn. Okay. Because these populations are increasing and the only way that they can follow their traditional forms of agriculture is to cut the forest...
0: And to destroy the infrastructure. To destroy the,
1: the forest, to grow their crops on it. Originally you would leave the land for 20 years after you'd taken crops from it Uh and it would regenerate. Now that's not happening. So
0: how does this differ? Is it technology or is it just knowledge?
1: It's basically a type of permaculture. So that you're planting a legume fixer in alleys. Um, So you plant this um, rapidly growing shrub that fixes nitrogen you plant your crop in the shade of these plants so that you plant the, the inger first. As it grows up, you plant your crop. Once the crop is well established, you cut the inger. Mm-hmm. So you can use the wood for firewood, which again reduces the amount of wood that people need to be cutting from the forest. You, you take the leaves off. You lay the leaves as mulch, which preserves the moisture on the soil and adds to the nutrition your crop grows up, you harvest your crop, the inga grows up again from the same base... And the cycle begins all over again. And
0: this is done on previously slashed and burned ground? Well, it's done on previous
1: cleared ground, but it means that you have a way of revitalising the soil without fertilisers. So you have a potential to actually have an upland farm that is on the same site and continues... And that means that you can fence it, you can look after it, um, rather than you know, just moving on to the next patch. The second thing... The you're... second thing is development of the swamps, because this is quite a wet area of the country. And basically you can develop channels that mean that you have a managed swamp, which is effectively like a paddy field. Mm -hmm. So you have sluice gates, you can take the water through, you can drain the water out, and you can grow a much better crop, and you can grow that year after year after year in the swamps. And because you can move those sluice gates and flood the water, you can control pests, you can control...
0: And this is technology they just didn't have there until. The
1: Inland Valley Swamps is technology that they have had. And in fact, the person who's working with us is a government um, agriculturalist, retired government agriculturalist. The problem has been the war and Ebola. Uh-huh. Because. Money's so, been
0: taken out of the community.
1: Well, everything collapsed. Sure. I mean, you know, you had 15 years of civil war, and the people who came back to the villages were the ex-child soldiers. You know, the older people who'd known what to do had died. Mm -hmm. And you have people coming back who are really just completely starting from scratch.
0: Do you go out there with a pastoral care mission as well, uh, trying to support the people who've coped with such trauma?
1: In the sense of the fact that if you were generating your life, yes, that... um, Gives you a positive movement, yeah. And we're talking 15 years ago now, so we're not talking immediately post-Civil War. Of course. Um, But you're seeing
0: generations come through as well, living in the shadow of such a place.
1: You are. And one of the towns that we're... One of the areas that we're working with suffered an enormous massacre. So those memories are fairly clear. Um, But what we're doing is basically trying to look holistically at this group of villages, initially bringing in the clean water. You then have more children surviving, so you need to get more food, Mm -hmm. so then you work on the inland valley swamps, you work on the agriculture. better
0: education service as well, I imagine, if there are children growing up in that area, you want to help them be able to self-propagate their own journeys?
1: Well, there's been a new government, and the... um, president has actually made primary education and secondary education free so the problem there is the structure of the buildings because you then have more children going to school they need to get they're bringing in a lot of partially trained teachers Mm -hmm. um, and volunteer teachers to try and support the children there's a lot of good work going on Um, but you do need more classrooms Mm -hmm. etc
0: so your charity, Roy's Well, what, what do they need now? Do they need more money? Do they need more volunteers? How, could, If people listening to this want to help out, what's the best thing they can do?
1: I think we are open to whatever people would like to do, but money is normally the most useful thing. Volunteers, it depends what you're doing. I mean, Neil and I are volunteers in teaching beekeeping, and just to f- fill you in a little bit on that, the rationale there... Is that West Africa has not had a tradition of beekeeping because the area we're in is a, is a forest area. People just say, "Well, the bees are just there." You know, mm-hmm. so you climb up the tree, you smoke out, you destroy the wild colony, you take yeah, the honey. Yeah, take the honey. That's not sustainable. No. So by teaching people to um, build a hive and look after that colony, you, they have an income. You then we then have formed the beekeepers together into an association to market the honey to bring income into the village. So that is now becoming a way of drawing some income into these... Um, yeah. isolated communities. Give
0: them a bee, they'll eat for a minute. Give them a wild colony of bees, they'll exhaust that in a, a week. Give them the ability to have their own business based around...
1: Something like that. There you go. So you're saying, do we want volunteers? Various people have come to Roy as well with various ideas, and currently there are people building a school, there are other people teaching carpentry. You know, the, Different... It, Different people can do different Come things. Comes in different ways. But on the whole, money is helpful.
0: Money is always helpful. Yes. Um, the other thing that you said that you had in common with Astrid's film was that you you have gone on a uh, anti-badger cull march.
1: Not a march. No, a no, no, it was basic. Well, it wasn't even a protest. It was sort of going out and trying to disrupt it. It was closer to the hundreds of a okay. um OK. You basically go out at night in the areas where there are reckoned to be... Badgers likely to be culls happening, and because you're there, they people can't are less likely out. to be shooting. So you're um, basically disrupting, disrupting, I suppose. Have and you also, if you find any dead badgers or dying badgers, obviously you, you take note of them and try and get them get them help.
0: Do you hear the um, the the guns going off at, like at night time? Do you hear?
1: I didn't. I mean, I went over to Newant and it, it felt quite in, interestingly subversive because there were police around trying to stop people disrupting it. Mm-hmm. But actually, I didn't see any particular action. but I had a very nice walk in at night with a group of like-minded people and somebody had an infrared torch, which is quite good for picking up badges. Um, But yes, apart from that, it was fairly uneventful, but a pleasant way of spending a night.
0: Have you been tempted to go uh, go out again soon?
1: I think I should, um, but I haven't as yet.
0: Uh, One of the things we were talking about today um, with with Harry, the CEO CEO of the the Devon Wildlife Trust, is the fact that politics, being as they are currently in this country, a lot of environmental affairs are being sidelined, especially things like the Bajakal. Um, People would much rather talk about the state of of, of Brussels than they are to talk about the state of Gloucester.
1: I really do not understand what this cull is doing because it's not scientific. Nobody is studying the animals that have been shot. Nobody is looking at the effects. Nobody has any evidence for it being successful in producing TV in cattle, which is believed to be the... Reason for it, I and mean, as far as I can see, they do damn sight better to spend the money on vaccinating the cows. The in cattle place, in the first place, which would cost less than this enormous rollout. The, there must be some other motive, and I don't know what it is.
0: Um, I could hypothesise, but mm. I'd rather do that off the record with a mm. glass of wine. So we'll <laughs> do that momentarily. um Whilst I've got you here uh, in in Nibley, in North Nibley. Um, we're going soon to talk to Mark Frith about the Nibley Green Oak, mm. um, and I'm sure he will talk to us too about it. But you mentioned that it was the site of was the last battle between two
1: private armies. There you go. Yeah, um, on English soil.
0: It sort of it takes me back to 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 your Morris dancing um, about how we don't quite know exactly what was the case, but stories have continued and these these oak trees become pinnacles of narrative. They become something that encapsulates an element of the past, whether they are a battle or a king sought shelter in this oak tree or something or other. There's that wonderful thing about rural heritage, whether it be something that we're actively engaged in through the act of dance or through just a proximity to nature, that is glorious that you feel interconnected to. Um, we were talking just before we started recording about how you feel blessed to be or to have lived within the proximity of two significant forests, the Forest of Dean and the New Forest. I was
1: born in the Forest of Dean and lived there for the first year or so of my life, and my daughter now lives there, and I obviously live fairly close now and I went to university in Southampton, spent a lot of time in the New Forest, and they're both wonderful forests, very, very different.
0: Subsequently, you feel not only filled by the wildlife, but I presume by the stories and the people amongst them who are fuelled by it.
1: Yes, I enjoyed, uh, when I did live in Southampton, finding out a bit more about some of the characters uh, around Rockenhurst and the snake catcher and all sorts of other stories of the New Forest and and the Forest of Dean, likewise, yeah
0: just to cut this off um, we have three questions that we ask everyone who's come on Trees a Crowd one if you could go for a walk anywhere in the world where would it be? daytime or nighttime? with badgers being shot or badgers not being shot
1: is this somewhere I haven't walked or somewhere that anywhere I enjoy anywhere
0: that you have have not would like would not like where would you like to go for a walk anywhere in the world where would it be?
1: I mean, the place closest to my heart is where I grew up, which is um, Humbleby, below the wood, in uh, just above Winchcombe. And to walk up to Snap and round the top of the wood and back down round the streams would bring back all the memories of my childhood that I've you know, associated with that valley. Of all the places I've walked... I love Dharamshala and the Himalayas, so I might well go back to Dharamshala. And other places I have not yet walked, probably the High Andes. <laughs> so but I don't think you're getting one out of all that lot. <laughs>
0: one of the most interesting things that we've had from people is the place they would want to walk is is their childhood. To, sort of yes. to recapture, to sort of yeah. to try and... Remember those innocent yeah. first encounters with the natural world. But
1: also, yeah, it's, it's so deeply ingrained in you. So yes, if you took away all the other countryside, I would go back to Humbleby.
0: Question two, should humans colonise the moon? No. Great. Any particular reason?
1: There's no point to it. It's a, We should concentrate on our earth and stop destroying it rather than spending money on going elsewhere.
0: And if you could bring back one species from extinction, what would it be?
1: I think I would prefer to bring back a species from the brink of extinction, if you see what I mean. Exactly.
0: Which would which um,
1: be? I don't know enough. For, I think probably the wildcat is actually very close to extinction at mm-hmm. the moment. It's also very close to losing its genetic heritage. So mm-hmm. I, I'll, I'll go for the wildcat, although it is not actually extinct at the moment.
0: Fantastic answer. Kathy, thank you very much indeed for talking to us. Thank you very much for listening to that bonus episode. Thank you, Kathy, for talking to me. You were amazing, quite frankly. I was not expecting that conversation to go that way. Um, if you would like to know more information about the charity she mentioned, Rory's Well, and about the work they're doing in Sierra Leone, please have a look at the Trees Crowd website on treesofcrowd.fm. There are links to that charity's website. There are links to everything she's spoken about in the podcast, including the snake catcher of Brockenhurst. And as with each episode, there's a little bit of further insight into what I thought about the interview. So thank you again for listening. There'll be our regular episode out in a week. I look forward to you tuning in again then. This is Trees Crowd. I'm David Oakes. Goodbye.